Amen. You may be seated. Well, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 22. Revelation 22 will begin in verse 6. We'll just look at a few verses this morning, 6 through 9. You probably know the, that there is a problem in, uh, on the streets today of distracted driving. Distracted driving kills about nine people every day in the U.S. We've tried doing something about the phenomenon as a nation. Right? Unfortunately, providing more information does not seem to be working. Despite all the public service announcements that you see, the statistics continue to show this discouraging trend. And more and more people are getting into accidents, more and more fatalities are occurring for the same reason. But it's interesting that even though we, we know the problem, right, we've heard of the problem, we know it's a growing problem, most of us who drive still have a problem with it. It's almost like it's not real to us. We know it's a challenge, but um, it's, it's like we're inevitably drawn to whatever it is. Um, the person that's in the car next to us or the phone that is notifying us as we're driving. There's another problem, though, that is on the rise in 2020. It's distracted worship, also a problem that's not new to us. Uh, for anyone sensitive to the spiritual needs that a worship service is designed to meet, Attempting to worship from home has been completely inadequate. And then you add to that the numerous restrictions placed upon churches, creating additional divisions and concerns. And then after the George Floyd uh, and BLM riots, we have seen various churches take radically different views regarding cultural issues. All of this adds up to a very confusing time for most of us. Even if you're trying to stay out of the fray, right? You don't involve yourself in those discussions when it comes up around family or you stay away from that political d discussion on social media. Uh, you still wind up very distracted. Right? Your mind is, is confused and distracted as you show up even Sunday mornings. Right? What does it take to, to snap us back into focus? That's... That's what I want us to consider this morning. I think this passage has something to, to say to each of us in that regard. It might even provide the answer you need to hear. So keep in mind the context of the original audience. Right, this, uh, we read in chapters 2 and 3 of the letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. These were actual churches that were gathering together, the Christian community, that were then receiving a letter which was filled with both encouragement and rebuke in almost every case. Right, there were some compromises of each church, except for, I think, one, um, if I recall. Um, but anyways, the churches were, were frequently compromised, right? Many of them had already compromised with the culture. Um, there were, they were entertaining false religions, especially the imperial cult, uh, where cities were competing for Caesar's um, accolades, for rewards uh, from Rome, you know, for honoring Caesar uh, better than anyone else in the region. 
And so in other words, they faced many distractions that pulled them away from glorifying and honoring God, not just on, in their uh, Sunday gatherings, their first day of the week as they gathered together, but throughout the week to, to remain steadfast in their faith. And because we are fascinated by things that are new or unique, uh, we are prone to transfer our worship to whatever captures our attention, right? It, it, whatever captures our attention in the moment. Um, the initial motion in worship is, is typically unthinking. And so you, you cannot worship God with a divided mind and heart. And we see our tendency to be divided to simply transfer our worship and our attention from one thing to the next. And I'm not necessarily equating attention with worship, but obviously you cannot worship if your mind and heart is divided. You cannot focus on the thing you're supposed to be worshiping. And so the, the goal this morning is, if you're following along in your outline, that summary statement there is, devote your minds and hearts to worship the returning Lord because he has revealed himself to be wholly trustworthy. And so we'll see that in these verses this morning. Before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for this reminder to us, Lord, to redirect our focus and our hearts, our attention upon you. It's so easy to be distracted. Even now, as we're here for the purpose of worshiping you, our minds can be wandering and thinking about everything else that's, uh, that we have to do today. Uh, or just the, the burdens that are on our heart, Lord. And in some cases, those are important things that we need to reflect upon. But right now, we want to give ourselves fully to you. We want to give our minds and our hearts and our, 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 have our whole being given to you as a sacrifice of praise in this worship service. And so speak to us as we sit under your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So read with me Revelation chapter 22, verses 6 through 9. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits, of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. And he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the first exhortation we receive is to keep the prophecy of Revelation. This is found in verses 6 and 7. Keep the prophecy of Revelation. Here, John is emphasizing the authenticity of Revelation, and he does it through three uh, components. He says the, he uses the angel to authenticate the message. Right? This is a message from God uh, delivered to him by the angel. Then he, he himself, or sorry, Jesus testifies in verse 7 there, Behold, I am coming soon. 
Whether these are the words of Jesus that are quoted by the angel, it doesn't necessarily say or distinguish, but these are Christ's words to his church. I am coming soon. And then thirdly, we see that John himself testifies. So all of these uh, witnesses are testifying to the true and trustworthy revelation that's found in this book. It's the same language you find, in fact, in chapter 21, verse 5, which uh, comes from the one who is seated on the throne. Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So he's emphasizing that again. What causes the words of revelation to be trustworthy and true is their source. They come from the source of truth. It's through this angel that God has revealed what must soon take place to his servants. And so John is the initial recipient of that revelation, and then he is uh, commanded to write it down for the church. And he initially disperses that to those seven churches in Asia Minor, and then through them that that letter is copied and sent on as well to the rest of the church. And now we have it preserved and provided to us this morning to read and be blessed by. Right, but it reveals what must soon take place according to the language here. Well, in the introduction to the series, we talked about uh, the relationship between uh, apocalyptic literature, Revelation, and Ezekiel, and, and Daniel. And we find that Daniel, uh, which the passage uh, Ray read to us this morning, emphasizes this language of the latter days, events that would take place in the latter days. It's in Daniel chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, as well as verse 45. That language is, is alluded to here uh, by John. Uh, the, the, the servants are showing them what must soon take place. That same idea here, it's, it's using the same context of latter day events or events that are taking place soon. He's not suggesting that everything would be fulfilled right away. That's being revealed here. Um, but that the events portrayed in these visions would begin to be fulfilled. Right? So that they would begin to make sense and have relevance to that generation that was initially reading it. And that that would continue to have ongoing consequences for every generation since then. It's not as if Revelation only makes sense to the first audience and no one else. And it's not as if Revelation should only make sense to the last audience. right? The one who's going to see this in the latter days. The latter days is made up of the entire age between Christ's first and second coming. And that is, that is how we understand Scripture teaching these things, right? So throughout her, uh, church history, under the New Covenant, you see persecution pacing the growth of the church. There was never a season or a generation that, was completely, um, that completely avoided persecution. And there's no generation that doesn't experience some level of growth among the church as it's expanding. That's not to say that they never experience uh, retreat or fall back as well like they have some decline in various regions but overall throughout history the church is expanding and growing and so these latter day events would take place soon even as Jesus is returning soon now clearly Jesus has not returned in the sense of bringing final judgment 
But we know he has not returned in that ultimate sense. But there were immediate implications for the original audience, just as there are implications for every succeeding generation throughout the age between Christ's first and second coming. And so Jesus says, I am coming soon. And he sends his spirit to do that work in and through his church. He says, I am coming soon three times in this chapter. We only read uh, the first one in verse 7, but he'll say it again in verse 12 and then again in verse 20. And so this becomes the primary theme of this section of Christ's near return or his coming quickly or soon. The word advent uh, that many churches celebrate an advent season um, it just simply means arrival or appearing. And therefore, it's used in reference to the birth of Christ, his first coming, as well as the return of Christ, his second coming. So when we talk about Advent or awaiting Advent in this series, it's, it's good that we consider his return as well as his birth. And so we'll reflect upon his birth, but the primary emphasis here, of course, is his return, his coming again soon. And it's going to be that public appearing of Christ to the church when he returns and establishes the new heavens and new earth. So Jesus says, I am coming soon. And that becomes this theme of hope that is expressed to the church, encouraging perseverance of the saints, right? It's encouraging us to persevere through our trials and tribulations that we will inevitably face as every other generation faced. So... We frequently find these thematic bookends in scripture where you read a book and it opens with a theme and then it closes with that same theme. Sometimes you find it even within an individual passage or a chapter where there's this reference to a theme that then the author comes back around to that same theme. You see this in Revelation. In the first section, um, in the greeting really, uh, John emphasizes all of the things that we just read in this passage. In chapter 1, verse 1 of Revelation, we see the same phrase, must soon take place. A reference to the events that are going to be described in this book are going to take place soon. Well, as I've explained, will begin to take place soon. You also see that threefold, uh, the threefold repetition of I am coming soon or I am coming quickly. That's a reference to this public appearing of Christ, who's coming on the clouds, as we read in chapter 1, verse 7. Right, Christ's public return. And then in Revelation 1, 3, John promised a blessing upon those who hear and keep the words of this prophecy. Same thing we just read here. Right, there's a promise of blessing upon those who hear the, the prophecy read and who keep the words of the prophecy. So again, we're called to obey and preserve the truth of these words. And I think in my lifetime, there's never been a more uh, critical time for us to hear this message of, of exhortation to persevere through trials and tribulation, at least here in America. Right? In, in Live Not By Lies, Rod Dreher shares the testimony of Alexander Ogorodnikov, I think that's how you pronounce it. A man who was born into a communist family, and yet he was converted to Christianity in his 20s. And one night his guard came into his cell. He had been transferred from one cell to the other, and, and here he was in a, a very small prison where he just had one guard watching him. But, and this guard that watched him at night 
clearly was struggling. He had kind of gone mad. And he enters into um, Alexander's cell uh, to confess these night terrors that he's having. And this is what Alexander Ogorodnikov shared with Rod Dreyer uh, in an interview. He says, when I was a young guard in a different prison, they would gather 20 or 30 priests who had been behind bars and took them outside. And when they put them into two rows, one behind the other, so everyone's lined up, say 10 in front and 10 behind, everyone's lined up, um, the, the, the back row would be right behind the, the row in front. And when they put them into two rows, one behind the other, I was one of the guards who stood in the perimeter around the prisoners. One of the KGB guys walked up to the first priest and he asked him very calmly and quietly, is there a God? The priest said, yes. They shot him in the forehead in such a way that his brains covered the priest standing behind him. He calmly loaded his pistol, went to the next priest and asked, does God exist? Yes, he exists. The KJB man shot this priest in the same way. We didn't blindfold them. They saw everything that was about to happen to them. Ogorodnikov fights back tears as he comes to the end of his story. In a voice cracking with emotion, the old prisoner says, not one of those priests denied Christ. So it's a powerful picture, right, of this incredible determination to stand firm for the truth, even in the face of death. And it reminds me of the martyrs who conquered the accuser of the brethren in their own death. Revelation 12, 11 says, And they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The, they conquered the accuser of the brethren by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. The words of Revelation were written down and preserved for a church that awaits the return of a Savior, and they graciously call us to turn our minds and hearts away from the distractions of the world and to focus upon the Lord who is coming soon. Our perseverance depends upon God's enabling us to keep these words, as he has done for the church throughout history. He will preserve and protect his church. And so the Lord is motivating us to obey the prophecy of this book, which is, the, uh, which is basically a call to persevere. And the words of Revelation are filled with terrifying images of this spiritual as well as physical warfare. And obedience to these words looks like enduring the trials and the tribulations with a steadfast commitment to God. And so we ought to cry out to the source of this revelation, asking him to teach us to cherish his words in a world that is filled with so much manipulation of language so much fake news it's good to know that you have a source you can trust and so when you're filled with anxious thoughts about the future ask the lord for his help in keeping these words near to stir up in you a desire to read them to meditate upon them to find your comfort in them 
and not the talking political pundits. Right, but by providing a vision of the invisible spiritual warfare, we are moved to ensure that we're on the right side of battle, of this spiritual battle. Are we fighting against the evil forces of darkness, or have we grown complacent? Have we just thrown in the towel? The culture war is over. We lost. Let's suck it up. Let's, let's find the bunker. No, have the words of, of this political season just inundated your mind and filled you with dread so that you can't even focus upon the word of God? I know that's been a temptation of mine. And if you've neglected God's word, now's the time to pick it up. To read and meditate upon its contents, its trustworthy and true. The primary purpose of Revelation is to motivate your perseverance. That's, that's why it's shared. It's not shared so that you can find a perfect timeline for end-time events. and You can figure it all out ahead of time. So that you can decode its contents. It's meant to encourage you to persevere through tribulation that's coming. And so let's close out this year with this reinvigorated determination to keep the prophecy of Revelation. That's the, the first point. Secondly, part of the fulfillment of that, part of keeping God's word is the unashamed willingness and determination to worship the God of Revelation. That's what we find in verses 8 and 9. John provides a, a warning here against false worship through his own humbling example. Right, this is the second time that John had to be rebuked for worshiping an angel. Look back at chapter 19, verse 10. Now, we don't know in time how much, how, how much prior to, to Revelation 22 this took place. It might have just been moments before, but it's several chapters prior in 1910. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. Almost the exact same language that you find here in Revelation 22. So some scholars have suggested that John is reinforcing a polemic against angel worship. We know that, uh, that this was a view that was gaining ground among the Jewish community in this, at this time. And it was something that Paul even addressed to the church in Colossae. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, he corrects angel worship, or he can, condemns it. But regardless of how prevalent it was, clearly John, in this moment, struggled with it. Twice. And he admits it to his readers. There's nothing commendable about him admitting this. Right? It's, it's, it, it does show his humility... Right? To give this humbling example. And so that in itself testifies to the, authentic the authenticity of the word. Um, and we might even understand the temptation that he was facing. But we shouldn't excuse it. It was not a good thing. And so it's, it signifies the effect that these visions were having upon John. Clearly the vision of, and the angel who revealed those visions 
were so glorious that he could not remain standing. He falls to his feet. But in his excitement to react in worship, he failed to properly engage his mind. And so his instincts were corrupted by this thoughtless reaction. The angel acknowledged himself to be a fellow servant alongside John the prophets and all who keep the words of this book. And so the angels, he's he's putting himself in the same category as believers. He's saying, I worship God like you. And so what did angels do? Well, they faithfully preserved the words of God. They're the ones sharing these visions with John. They're preserving the word and they're engaging in ongoing worship. You see that throughout the book of Revelation. And so Greg Bill points out that the main idea of revealing the glory of God in Revelation is to exhort the saints to reflect that glory in their obedience and worship. So we're called to guard and protect the word of God and to worship him in light of that truth. The revelation of God's attributes stir up in us a desire to reflect those attributes to him in worship. John has associated this word keep with the worship of God very clearly here. And so we meditate upon his revelation and then we respond with a reaction that magnifies the attributes of God's victory both in judgment and redemption. And so throughout, throughout these visions, John has been dependent upon this angel's explanation. And his appreciation for the angel became something like an obsession with the angel's presence. And so it's as if John were blindly following his instincts to bow down at the angel's feet. Now, bear with me for a moment, but honestly, I, 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 I think it's not unlike the way we treat our smartphones today. We get those annoying pings that tether us to our phones throughout the day. We pick them up every 10 minutes, according to research. That's almost 100 times per day. And that's an increasing statistic, of course. We use them for about three and a half hours every day. One of the reasons is because we've downloaded these social media apps like Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and whatever else they've come up with, right? These, these apps have literally perfected the art of distracting us all day. And even when, we're, when the, the apps are not making noise at us, they provide these annoying red notification bubbles on your phone so that every time you turn the screen on, you have this this innate instinct to pop all those bubbles, right? Like you've got a, like a bubble wrap, a, a fresh sheet of bubble wrap in front of you as a kid, and you just have to pop every single one. As adults, that's our version of it, right? Is these notification bubbles. You either have to turn them off, or they'll just, they'll just perpetually keep you focused on your phone. Now, of course, this destroys our ability to focus on things that are important that we're trying to focus on, which means that we're rarely in a state that is suitable for worship. Steve Jobs understood the addictive design of the iPhone, which is why he refused to give it to his kids. 
that should be a warning in itself. Now, so, so coming back to the scene here, while we might not, like John, be tempted to bow down before this radiant angel, we are daily, multiple times throughout the day, tempted to bow our heads before this glowing screen that we devote our attention to. And in the end, it distracts us from worshiping God. Now, unfortunately, our, our phones don't rebuke us for our idolatry like this angel did. They beckon us deeper. And so we should seriously consider various ways to redirect our focus. In fact, I, I changed my notification to something that would remind me of a trumpet sound so that I could be reflecting upon the fact that Christ is coming soon. And so that all the, all the notification buzzes and sounds that I hear would at least give me a thought about Jesus Christ before I, before I uh, look at it. I, wanna, I want the returning king to captivate my heart more than some distracting ping. And those who are convinced by the Lord's call to persevere must now commit themselves to worship him exclusively. And so this lifelong struggle replays itself every Sunday morning when your alarm goes off. Our mind races through various excuses to stay home. We carry on this internal dialogue throughout every day of our lives. And should we read the Bible or should we turn on some news channel? It's a lifelong struggle. Where are we devoting our attention? To what or whom are we, are we bowing our hearts? We must frequently take account of who, what, and how we are worshiping. Because even when we are devoted to something that is good, we oftentimes do so in an unthinking manner, just out of routine, not engaged. And so do you see something of your own tendencies in John's hasty reaction? You should. He's not so far from us. We naturally seek to worship whatever captures our imagination and attention. And unfortunately, our fickle hearts are distracted by many inferior sights. And so the angel's rebuke in this passage serves to set us straight as well. It is the messenger of God sent not only to reveal these mysteries to John, but to rebuke and exhort him to proper worship. God has now provided these words to you for the same purpose. All of us need to hear this gracious rebuke to recalibrate our hope, to set our minds upon the returning Lord. And so we might not naturally think of correction as a grace or a kindness, but if the result is greater satisfaction in things that have an eternal value, then it is precisely what we need to hear. And so one of the means by which we will keep the prophecy of Revelation is by the enjoyment of undistracted worship of the Lord. And so honoring Christ with our undivided attention is something we should all be willing to fight for. Nothing else takes precedence over that. And the promise of Revelation is that the Lord has secured your enjoyment of true worship for all eternity. Look back at verses 3 through 5. 
No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. All right, so in heaven, the throne of God will be central, and the Lord will provide all the light that we need as we reign with him forever, worshiping him face to face for all eternity, completely undistracted. So Jesus is coming soon to bring us all the way home to that incredible inheritance that awaits. And so let us devote our minds and our hearts to worship him who is wholly trustworthy even now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word, for this reminder. Lord, we need to hear these things. We need to be reminded of your trustworthy revelation that it is true that it is more valuable and important to us than anything that might distract our minds during this season we're distracted by financial concerns we're distracted by political concerns we're distracted by racial tension by cultural tension by tensions within the church within the denomination within Lord, the, the communities in which we live, within our neighborhoods, within our own personal home, within our families, whether it be extended or our immediate family, where there's so much need right now to rest firm in your word, to come back and be restored once again to the joy of our salvation, to be reminded of the steadfast truth that you've revealed. Lord, cause us to persevere in our dependence upon you and our commitment to this truth. Prepare us for days ahead where it's almost certain to get worse. Lord, help us to bear the burdens of those who are suffering, those who are struggling, even if we are not. Because the day will come when we depend upon others in our struggles. And we are so grateful that you've given us a community of saints to bear those burdens together, to lift one another up, to carry each other through these times of trial. And Lord, ultimately, we want to point ourselves, our hearts, and the hearts of others to you and to the grace that you've given us, even if that grace sometimes sounds like a rebuke or a correction. We need to hear it. And it's preparing us for that eternity that awaits where we will no longer be distracted from what is true worship. Lord, continue to work in our hearts even now as we respond and worship the returning King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I invite you to stand as we sing our hymn of response, O Worship the King, hymn number 219.